I always will steer kids towards that college experience. I think there's so much you learn in college um, in terms of the skills, really starting being able to explore lots of different avenues for your career. Hello, and welcome to Proud to Be You, the official alumni podcast of Boston University. I'm your host, Jeff Murphy. Thanks so much for tuning in. On today's episode, my guest is Ayala Shakur, the president of the Redstone Family Foundation and a proud Questrom School of Business alum. We spoke about changing lanes from aspiring screenwriter to educator and eventually to becoming the head of a major charitable foundation fighting to end hate through education. Proud to Be You showcases the journeys of some of Boston University's most interesting and accomplished alumni. Inspiring grads share the highs, the lows, and the challenges they've overcome along the way from calm out to innovative careers. No matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. Well, thank you so much for being here to chat with me. Uh, if I have my facts right, you're born and raised in the Boston area, right? Sure I am. That's right, Jeff. I'm born in uh, Roxbury and have lived there for most of my life, so I'm definitely a Boston girl. And the Questrom School of Business, what was School of Management when you graduated, uh, wrote an incredible profile on you um, a few years ago. You are from a BU family. Your dad. I am. That's right. That's right. My mom went to BU. She studied uh, physical therapy. And the joke in the household is when she told her parents she wanted to come to Boston to be a physical therapist, they said, what is that? Like No one had ever heard of that back in the 50s. And my dad uh, actually went to BU School of Law, so we got BU in the blood. I want to talk about you, but I'm also curious just to know, you know, they it was the late 50s, early 60s, they were here. What, what do you know about their experience as students at BU? BU was a very welcoming place. I mean, that was, you know, one of the things that drew me to the university is that it's always been ahead of the curve in terms of wanting to be... Uh, on the front line of diversity and inclusion and equity and um, really had opened the doors to Black students all across the country. Um, and I found the same thing when I was here at BU in the 80s. I was just a very, very welcoming place. It's so interesting that that history relates so well to what you're doing now and, and yes. working there. But did you did you grow up thinking that you might attend BU? What was Absolutely your not, no. <laughs> I actually, my plan was not to attend school in Boston at all. I actually um, applied to schools all outside of the city of Boston and wanted to travel. Sort of my dream school was to go to Georgetown and uh, in D.C. So sorry for that little shout out. Um, but, you know, life has its way of, of having different twists and turns. And I actually um, had a son when I was a senior in high school and um, at that point, I was a mom, a you know, teenage mom heading into college, and my parents were pretty adamant that I should continue on with my education, and I needed to stay close to town. So I decided to stay in Boston, and at that point, Boston University was the obvious choice. Mm. So you must have had what I can only assume was a pretty, no, I don't want to call it non-traditional, but your experience as an undergrad must have been quite different from some of the other folks you were attending. It classes. was, it was, but you know, I mean, I have to give all all tribute to my parents for having just being incredibly supportive. And um, I actually was kicked out of the house, um, not in the way that you typically think about, but my mom was like, you need to go grow up. And so she had me stay in the dorms. Um, so I actually had the chance to live on campus during the week and be home on the weekends. 
Um, and my son was at home and my parents were just incredible. Um, but they really just thought it was important that I have a full experience, the college student. Um, and I did. It was an incredible, wow. incredible asset. Um, you think I read I'm your really dad? Grateful for. I think I read your dad might no longer be with us. Is he is not. He passed away, but he's definitely my hero. He was um, just a champion around. for civil rights and he was a criminal justice, criminal attorney, criminal defense. And um, just, just. And your mom is still with us. And she's still here, 85 years young, uh, you know, just full of energy and, and um, just loving life. And, you know, we have, um, longevity in our family. My great-grandmother lived to be 104 years old, so my mother is determined to make it to at least 100. So, oh, good. Yeah, I, she's I, going I, strong. I hope I get invited to her 100th birthday. Yes, indeed, indeed. So you've got a lawyer and a physical therapist in the family. Yes. You come into BU on day one, and you are dreaming of becoming what? I'm dreaming of becoming a screenwriter. I wanted to write movies in Hollywood. And so I actually started out in SPC, which is the School of Communications. And um, I did SPC the first year, was doing great. You know, my professors loved my writing and I was really excited about it. And my mother, who's a true pragmatist, just basically said, you will starve in communications. <laughs> like, you will not find a good job. You have a son. You need to figure out how you're going to have a more stable career. Um, and so I ended up switching in my second year over to uh, the School of Management. And because I love to write, I decided I was going to study marketing. So I actually went uh, to the registrar to register for marketing. And while I was standing in line, there was a guy behind me and he said, well, what are you going to sign up for? Um, and before I could say a word, he said, I bet you're going to study marketing because all the girls go into marketing and all the guys do finance. So when I got to the front of the line and they asked me, what is my major going to be at SMG? I said, finance. <laughs> so I became a finance major um, and it really served me well to have that finance background. I, I did not think I was great at math, but it really forced me to correct myself and ended up using those finance skills in every aspect of my career. Since. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you even early on, you're at BU and you're making all these decisions to make fairly big changes. Yes. And, and that's a theme that I, I see through the rest of your career. I'm going to be asking you about that a lot. So let's talk about the. I mean, your decision to switch majors, that's a big yes. decision. Let's talk it about your decision-making when you graduate. Yeah, what so I graduated yeah. and, um, you know, that longing to be a screenwriter had not disappeared. And I um, mean, yeah, I still had tons of friends who were in school of communications going off to do their thing. And, you know, one of the things I loved at BU was being in Black Drama Collective. So I still had that theater and arts and entertainment in my blood. And so... Um, after talking it over with my parents, I actually went off to Hollywood to see if I could actually to, you know, take a stab at being a screenwriter and uh, became a starving screenwriter. It's sort of just as my mother had predicted. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of money to be made. And, um, you know, as I was sort of thinking about how was I going to make it in, in Los Angeles as a single mom, um, there at the time there was a teaching shortage going on in L.A., and so I kept seeing these ads on TV that said, you know, if you have a degree in anything, uh, we're desperate, come teach, it's going to be great, right? And so um, I decided, you know, let me give that a shot. In fact, I was actually dating a guy at the time whose mom was a teacher and he said, you should. So I actually went down to Los Angeles Unified and said, hey, I'm here to be a teacher. And they said, well, we actually filled all of our slots, but why don't you go down the road to Compton? Because um, I think they're hiring in Compton, California. 
So I went down the road and um, sure enough, I landed a job in Compton Unified School District. Now, this was like at the height of gang violence in Compton. So, you know, police helicopters, you know, overhead, constant shootouts at the high school down the road. I was at McNair Elementary School with these wonderful, innocent, bright-eyed first and second graders um, and really just fell in love with teaching. I had no idea I was going to be there uh, or that this was going to be my career. I was really sort of just passing through. But life has all these twists and turns and you start to just find your path and education was the path. Yeah, so you're loving teaching. Um, how long are you teaching in LA Public Schools for? So I taught in Compton for um, for oh. two years. Is that different um, from LA Public? Okay. What was that? Is that different from LA Public? No, LA. So LA Unified was actually it was in the Los Angeles County, but it was the Compton Unified School District that I was actually working in. Um, and it, yeah, right up at the time when NWA was screaming yeah. straight out of Compton, and Tupac Shakur was, you know, just coming on the scene, and you know, everyone thought I was Tupac's cousin. No relation. Uh, that street cred was actually very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> That was, uh, yeah, it was a useful name. Um, but no, after two years in Compton, you know, and my son was out there with me and it was really hard to be out in Los Angeles um, with no family there as a single mom. And so I um, decided to come back to Boston. And I said, well, okay, if I'm going to come back to Boston, I think I have found my thing in education. So I decided to, um, to apply to Harvard and went to Harvard to get my graduate degree mm -hmm. in education because this was going to now be my chosen career field. Yeah, so you have did a look. master's degree full-time. Yeah, got my master's, no, part-time, part-time, still okay. a single mom. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was teaching during the day in Boston Public Schools and then taking my my graduate classes in the afternoon and evenings. And um, it's a one-year program, took me two, two years to get through. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was just incredibly valuable to have that network and community over at Harvard as well. Um, and, you know, during that time, I also went from Boston Public Schools, um, where I taught for a total of six years and then an additional three years at a charter school, which was Academy of the Pacific Rim. So 11 years altogether uh, that I spent in the classroom and loved every minute of it. And so then here we are at decision making again. How, what happened yes. next after the master's? And because you end yeah. up making a pretty tremendous decision. Uh, I did. You know, I was a classroom teacher. You know, I, I tend to follow life's path. You know, when doors open, just to sort of walk through those doors. And I remember while I was at Harvard, there was a mutual friend that I had there. Um, and I was he was saying, well, what's your vision? Like, what do you want to do with your life long term? Like after you get this degree? And I said, you know, I don't really know. But at, at some point, I would love to own my own center, like some sort of an after school center, working with young people and doing really interesting things. Um, and like two weeks later, that same guy came back and said, you know, I know a woman who actually has a tutoring center and she's thinking about selling that center. I think you should come meet her. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll come meet her. I wasn't really thinking tutoring center. I was really thinking more like a theater arts kind of center. But I, I actually went and met her. Her name was Violet Birch. And she had a tutoring center called Boston Tutoring Center that was in Dorchester. Um, and I just really was attracted to this idea of working with young people in an after school, um, being able to um, you know, work with them on their academics, but also on some of the social emotional pieces and not have some of the bureaucracy that you see in a 
And long story short, um, I started out as a tutor there, um, and eventually I bought the company. Um, I bought it. I restructured it as a nonprofit. It should have been a nonprofit from the beginning, uh, you know, a little small mom and pop operation, serving largely um, students from under-resourced communities, mostly Black and Latino young people, kindergarten to 12th grade. Um, and I renamed it Boston Learning Center and ran that for 15 years. So it was it was quite a journey. And part of that time, a large part of that time, I was still teaching. So again, sort of teaching during the day, running this other business after school and really kind of juggling that with being a single mom. Along the way, I got married. Um, and, you know, so life's journey, you know, you sort of look up and 15 years have gone by. Um, and I've learned so much over the course of years about what it means to be in the nonprofit world, to be a nonprofit leader, um, and used all of my writing skills as a grant writer because, you know, you have to raise money when you're in the nonprofit world. So things started to really yeah. connect and, and really feel like it. I'm still fascinated by you buying this company, though, and turning it into a nonprofit. How old are you at that time? I'm like 25. 25. <laughs> are you incredibly confident or are you incredibly scared when you make the decision? I'm both. I'm sort of idealistic. I, I said to my dad, you know, I was tutoring there. My dad, you know, he's still alive. I said, dad, I'm thinking about buying this company. Like, I don't want to see it go out of business. It's, it's this incredible gem in the communities doing tutoring, like a, a Sylvan Learning Center or Princeton Review, but at a price that people can afford in our community. And I said, I, I just don't want to see it die. I'd rather, you know, be the person to take it over than, you know, because the woman was going to close it. She couldn't find anyone to take it. And my dad literally said, you know, he looked at the books and looked at the records. He said, that's a dog with fleas. You should run. You don't want to go anywhere near it. Don't do it. I said, no, I really want to do it. And he said, okay, the way to do it, like, let's reincorporate it. Let's make it a totally different name, inherit the space and the clients and the instructional materials and the tutors. So it was kind of like, you know, my dad really helped me do it in a way that, that felt viable. Um, but yeah, I think it was really more like wanting to be there for the community and not wanting to see this incredible resource here. And my dad had really instilled in me this love of community and giving back and, you know, wanting to be part of the solution at all times. Sure. So are, are, are you at this stage in your career, are you thinking of yourself as an educator, a community organizer, yeah, uh, that's entrepreneur. To this day, I still see myself as an educator. People ask, yeah. like, what do you do? I'm an educator. Um, so just going from educating young people in the classroom to now doing it in after-school arenas, still very much working closely with schools um, and working with young people in that context, partnering with schools as our clients uh, that needed after-school tutoring. And that's actually what brought me to Academy of the Pacific Rim because we were running their tutoring program, they said, hey, we need a, an English teacher here. And you come over and teach English. And that's what actually brought me out of the Boston Public Schools. And, so you've got the incredible community relationships that are kind of pushing and pulling you in different directions. And then eventually uh, an incredible organization called Bill Build comes and is knocking. Yes, yes. This organization comes along called Build. And, um, you know, so I'm at Boston Learning Center, um, really, in, you know, growing the organization. I think when we started out, we had maybe 50 students. When I left, it was closer to like 600 students. We had kids all across the state at that point. And one of the people that was working with me, who was my grant writer, because now I had staff, um, she said, you really need to be on a bigger stage, like this local Boston thing. Like, I think you need to do something 
with a national organization. And there's this program called Build that's coming to town and they're looking for an executive director to launch their Boston office, but you'd be part of a national organization. And I said, I'm absolutely not doing that. Uh, I have no interest. I'm totally fine. I'm running my own thing. And she said, well, is it okay if I throw your hat in the ring? And I said, okay, you can, but I'm really not going anywhere. Um, and so she did. And then the search firm reached out and, and I had one conversation with the team from Build um, and just fell in love. And I was like, okay, take this. Probably the next thing. Yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up at Build, a national youth entrepreneurship program that actually works with young people, um, teaching them entrepreneurship as a way to help them stay in school. Actually started out as a dropout prevention program. And so it's all about using the tools of entrepreneurship to inspire and re-engage and motivate young people, ground them with mentors, and to give them these social emotional skills, communication and collaboration, problem solving. Uh, just an amazing journey to launch a program like that here in Boston from the ground up, um, from a staff of one, uh, to partner with folks from Bain Capital Ventures and other venture capitalist firms and entrepreneurial, uh, the energy that was in Boston at that time, which was springing up around entrepreneurship at the same time that I was launching Mills. At that point, then I did feel more like an entrepreneur, right? I, at that point, it was interesting because I'd learned so much in the 15 years that I ran Boston Learning Center. And it wasn't until I stepped out of Boston Learning Center and went to build that I realized, hey, I actually know quite a bit about being a nonprofit leader. So all of those lessons. And then you become the national CEO. Yes, right. I mean, again, nothing I ever could have imagined at all. In fact, uh, when they launched, when the founder after 20 years launched the search i literally said to her i pity the fool that takes that job <laughs> there's no way i would ever want to be the ceo of this company but the people who were applying were just all wrong and again you hear that still small voice that says well gee maybe maybe it needs to be me like maybe you know i felt really strongly it needed to be someone internal in the organization to lead us to the you know, the, the sort of the next iterations of build and lo and behold, it, it ended up me. Um, and so here I am now the CEO of a national nonprofit with offices in Boston and New York and Washington, D.C. We our founding headquarters was in the Bay Area. So we were in Redwood City and Oakland. And then under my leadership, we expanded to Los Angeles and Pittsburgh. We launched a satellite program. Um, and what I'm most proud of, uh, proudest of is that when COVID hit, um, actually right before COVID hit, I had the forethought to think, you know, maybe it's time we start to go digital because we can reach tens of thousands more students if we have a digital program um, in addition to the in-person offering. So when COVID hit and the schools closed, we actually already had the funding lined up to actually start digitizing some of our curriculum. So we were able to pivot very, very quickly. Um, with our digital offering. So now the organization went from reaching about 2,000 students a year. It was about 10,000 students a year uh, when I was leaving. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you look back now on that experience with Build and prior to that, yes. <laughs> when young people, who I assume you are still in touch with on a very, very regular much. basis, tell you, yes. I want to be a teacher. I want to be the leader of a national nonprofit yes. that's going to impact tens of thousands of students every year. What are the, the 
you, you talked about like, oh, I'm working with Bain Capital and I'm, you know, managing this like countrywide initiative. What are the skills that you feel like educators need? And what advice do you share with them about how to go about making sure that they have the knowledge and the skills to succeed in their chosen path? Right, right. That's a great question. I mean, there's so many different things I, I say to that. I mean, you know, first of all, you have to have the skills, right? So a lot of times students will say, well, do, do I need to go to get my degree? You know, I feel like I've got all the skills I need. Like, can I bypass college? And I always will steer kids towards that college experience. I think there's so much you learn in college um, in terms of the skills, really starting being able to explore lots of different avenues for your career. And then also just the networking, the people that you meet along the way who will be part of your life journey. So I always steer students to do that. The social capital is really important. So just, you know, that was one of the things we did really well at Build is to teach students the importance of social capital and to help them understand how you build those relationships through your career. And so I'm always really encouraging young people to think about who are you meeting along the way? How are you holding on to those relationships? How are you continuing to build the circle of people who you know and who know you? Uh, because that's very, very important. And then it's those soft skills that are so important. The same soft skills we were teaching at Build, the communication and the problem solving and the critical thinking and collaboration, all of those things are really important for young people as they make their way um, through their life journey. And I think the main thing I, I remind students about, just sort of pulling on my own experience, is you have to be open to those opportunities. Always be open to the opportunities. I have a pastor here in Boston um, at what used to be New Covenant Church. It's now the Jubilee Church. Um, and he did a whole sermon on the definition of poor. And he said, poor stands for passed over opportunities repeated. Hmm. You have to, have to, have to in life be open to opportunities. When doors are open, you need to be able to walk through them. And you also have to be ready, right? So there's also another famous saying that I love that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So you have to be prepared when those opportunities come your way. And you have to be able to recognize an opportunity when it's right there in front of you. And to seize it, even when you don't know where it's leading, you just have to be ready to, to seize that moment and walk through that time. This episode is brought to you by BU Connect, Boston University's exclusive online platform for alumni and student networking, mentoring, and more. Explore the profiles of nearly 30,000 Terriers and see how they're willing to help. Join groups to network with members who share your city, industry, or interests. Share advice or mentorship with students in need. Promote your business in the alumni business directory or find jobs posted by and for the BU community. Activate your free profile today at buconnects.com. So we talked about making big decisions. We talked about the value of networking and social capital. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna guess that played a tremendous role in your current role now with, as president did, of the Redstone Family Foundation. When did you get connect, first get connected to the Redstone Family Foundation? I got connected. Now, talk about full circle moments. I got connected to Sherry Redstone, who's the chair of Paramount Global, during my very first year with Bill. No kidding. So Build, and this is Build Boston when I founded Build Boston. So when I took that leap of faith from Boston Learning Center, which was my own nonprofit that I was running, 
and came over to build, you never could have told me back then that I'd end up a CEO of that company and that a board member from that original launch in Boston would actually ask me to come and run her. But that's exactly what happened. So Sherry Redstone, um, who I first met um, back in when we first founded Build Boston, um, she stayed on our board for five years. And when she came off the board, she became a mentor to me. So we actually stayed in touch um, for the 12 years total that I was at Build. And it was actually during one of my second meetings with her, just sort of catching her up on what we were up to. And I was sort of pitching her a new program that we were launching at Build. It was called Campus Without Walls. And she said, you know, I really need someone like you to run my foundation. And I said, are you serious right now? Because like, that sounds like something we should have a different conversation about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how this came about. I mean, her, um, her father, Sumner Redstone, had passed away and now she had taken over her father's foundation in addition to her own and she was ready to go deeper in her philanthropy and um, I just felt incredibly honored that she would consider me to be the first staff person that would actually help to lead her foundation and it's just been another incredible journey um, yeah when I, dream when I first saw that sort of change on looking at your like LinkedIn history yes incredibly long uh storied successful career in in nonprofits in and direct and, service that's right yeah, right and then going over to the foundation side at first glance to me is like oh wow that seems like it was a major change for her but then of course as i started to read more about the redstone family foundation i was like oh this makes tons of sense so yeah, why did it is, make sense to you it absolutely made sense right i mean the work of the redstone foundation um and i, I just really appreciate working with sherry redstone we were able to come up with the mission statement together. So our mission is to combat racism and anti-Semitism, primarily through civics and cross-cultural education for children, youth, and families while engaging the broader community. So, you know, racism and anti-Semitism, huge, huge issues. Um, you know, I had a chance to really focus on those issues from the education sphere, working with young people, helping them to overcome a broken system and to go on to great lives. Um, using the power of entrepreneurship and the power of education. Um, I had also along that journey, and I'll just sort of backtrack a bit, I actually also had the honor of serving as chair of the education committee for the NAACP and really had learned a lot about advocacy and policy and all the other levers that can be pulled to advance a more equitable world. And so the idea of working with Sherry, who's really powerful um, and just so passionate about issues of hate, um, how do we combat those issues? How do we um, just create a more civilized society? How do we get to a place where people can disagree, but do it in a way that's building bridges as opposed to tearing them down? Those were some of the issues that she wanted to address. And they were issues that were just very near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and what we love together about this work is that when you're working with young people and we work with them as little as like preschool kids and their families, all the way up to college students and graduate students um, at the Redstone Foundation. It's just really an opportunity to change hearts and minds and to build a new generation um, that understands tolerance and inclusion and diversity and acceptance and belonging. And that's that's something that I'm still very... It really must feel, again, from an outsider's perspective, I have to imagine this is like a dream job for you because you spend this career where I'm sure that you're 
clawing for every dollar you can get in support of your mission. And now you get a chance to be part of a family foundation that is helping provide the funds and other resources needed for organizations all over the place to have success. And it's still so centered on education and students. So is this a dream job for you? It is definitely a dream job. It is absolutely a dream job. It's just, I mean, and Shari, again, is just such an incredible leader to work with and partner with. Um, So it has been a dream job in that regard, um, just having such a wonderful partner. Um, It also is wonderful to be able to provide resources for great nonprofits who are doing this work around combating racism and anti-Semitism and hate and building cross-cultural understanding. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is, you know, Jerry's a major entrepreneur in her own right, um, incredible business leader and media executive. And one of the things that she loves to do is to fund projects where we are one of the first funders at the table. We're actually helping with the launch of a new initiative. So we've actually had a chance to be part of the program design, part of the thought partnership that goes into how we're actually creating programming that's delivering on our mission and then working and partnering with other organizations. So I still get to roll up my sleeves and and sit on committees that are doing some of the program design and curriculum outlines and frameworks and so forth. So I still get to use my educator. And the Red St- and I, I think so many people probably realize the Redstone family has been such an incredible supporter of Boston University for so long. Absolutely. Do you know about this as you're sort of evaluating your decision to go work? Well, with them? when I first found out about the BU tie, was actually based on our work with BU Law School. Um, the law school is one of the law school buildings is named after Sumner Redstone. And what we wanted to do was to actually create a Redstone, a Sumner Redstone library with some of his writings and memorabilia. And so that library, um, it's, it's like a reading room. It's currently in development and will be opening up officially in the spring. We'll have a whole ribbon cutting. So it was really wonderful to, you know, for both Shari and I to have dads who were at BU Law School. She was at BU Law School as well. And for us both to have that BU time in yeah. common. So I was just reading the other day about this incredible, um, uh, I don't want to call it a conference that took place at UConn, but the um, Human Rights Close to Home Initiative. Yes. Is that one of our proudest initiatives. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, it's part again about that civics education. And um, it's a program that Shari um, really came up with the idea for together with um, Senator Chris Dodd. Um, and they were really just, um, talking about the lack of civics education in our public schools today, just the lack of civic awareness that young people have, and how could we actually create a program that would be um, providing education for both students and teachers to be able to bring civics into the classroom. And it came to be known as Human Rights Close to Home. We actually just launched the initiative last summer with the Summer Institute. And so we brought together about 30 teachers from across, this is in the Connecticut region, um, because it's tied to UConn. Um, So about 30 teachers from kindergarten up to high school, um, as well as a cohort of about 20 high school students. And the teachers and students learned side by side all about human rights education and are now working on projects in their schools to bring human rights uh, projects to life their neighborhoods. So it's it's another great example of Sherry's creativity um, and entrepreneurial ideas coming to life and working with a great nonprofit in this instance. 
Connecticut doing that program. Are there other similar projects that the foundation in, is involved in that are coming up in 2024 that people might want to look into? Well, one of the big initiatives we're also focused on right now is really strengthening bonds between the Black and Jewish community. Um, so we're doing a lot of convenings around Black and Jewish relations. We actually um, also have launched a film impact series where we'll be focusing on films that deal with issues of hate um, and deal with issues around racism and anti-Semitism. So that series will be um, targeting high school students all across greater Boston, as well as youth leaders and educators so that they can bring some of that learning into the classroom. So those initiatives will continue to run. You'll hear more about those. We can share those with the BU community. Um, also planning a fireside chat um, with uh, BU Law School. So hopefully, you know, people also will be able to listen in or to attend that event where Jerry will be being with the dean of BU and having really important conversations. Ayala, we uh, can only imagine how difficult it is to make a decision about what you're going to do after finishing a college degree. Um, and to that end, we actually, for this season of the podcast, we've invited some students and recent grads to ask questions of our guests. And we have a recent Questroom grad who has an interesting question for you uh, from Gwendolyn. Hi, my name is Gwendolyn Barge. I graduated from Questrom School of Business in 2022, and I'm proud to be you. While you were at BU, do you have any idea that your current job existed? <laughs> I love that question. That's great. Um, so I knew there were nonprofit leaders. Um, you know, I had gone through some great nonprofits uh, myself, just as a child growing up in Boston. Lots of great nonprofits here. Um, what I did not know about, though, was this whole grant-making career that you could sort of be the president of a foundation and giving money away, nor did I know what the path was to get into that type of career. So, um, so no, I think that that was kind of foreign to me. And again, my whole path went from screenwriting. I bounced around in real estate for a little bit. I just, you know, really didn't know exactly where I was going to land. And when I finally got into education, that's when I knew I was in the right spot. Like when, when you know, when you find the career that's right for you, it just resonates all through your soul. It becomes part of your purpose um, and you know you're in the right seat. All right. Well, Ayala, thank you so much for the time you spent with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me on. It's so exciting to be able to talk about my experiences at BU and just proud to be you all around. <laughs> Great. Thank you. My thanks again to Ayele for joining me on Proud to Be You. Her decades of work uplifting young people through education is truly inspiring. If you heard something that makes you proud to be you, I hope you'll join me in making a donation to the BU cause that matters most to you at bu.edu give. Thanks for listening to Proud to Be You. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your episodes. Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University and our partners, Five Tool Productions, a BU alumni-owned, Boston-based company specializing in video production, live streaming, and content marketing. Our theme from artist.io is Think About Lights by Ben Fox. All additional media in this episode has been shared by our guest. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash proud to be you.